Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and since 2014, we've celebrated and commiserated with world-class experts, best-selling authors, and parents around the world. Hi, everyone. I've been digging into our archives in order to find something extra special to share with you all, and I found it. It's our second conversation with Dr. Shafali Sabari that we originally shared on May 31st, 2016. I cannot believe that it's been three years. I recently spoke with Dr. Shafali because she asked me to speak to her coaching institute, and it was so much fun catching up with her and seeing her face and uh, getting to reflect on how far the podcast has come and also how I've been playing the long game. I look forward to sharing some of that soon. So many of you have reached out about our recent conversation with Dr. Robin Berman regarding the college admissions scandal. And I feel like this conversation with Dr. Shafali is the perfect podcast pairing. Dr. Shafali Sabari does such a great job of shining a light on how our egos can get tangled up in parenting. And if you appreciated that conversation with Dr. Robin Berman, I'm sure you'll love this one as well. So don't forget to check out our show notes at AtomicMoms.com. That'll have all the links. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and join our Not Annoying newsletter. I'll be right back with this conversation from three years ago. It's so crazy how much changes and how much stays the same. It's really strange re-listening because at the beginning, I share an essay I wrote about Sabrina, who was a toddler at the time. And it's so weird because I find myself in the same situations now with her little sister, Eliza. Oh boy, my daughter's downstairs and she keeps yelling for me because they know, don't they? (laughs) They always know. Uh, And so I have this Super thoughtful introduction on conscious parenting. And uh, internally, I'm having this struggle of like, Ellie, why are you not downstairs consciously parenting? Uh, She seems to have quieted now, though. Uh, And I'll be down there shortly. So today's guest, Dr. Shafali Sabari. Oprah recently had her do the Super Soul Sessions that Teresa Palmer and I uh, did a podcast commentary on. Uh, and, and during that, Oprah said, parents, you will be wowed and awed by her. She speaks to the importance of celebrating the ordinariness in our children. You know, it's when they're brushing their teeth. Uh, for Sabrina, it's when she pulls out all of her PJs to decide which one to wear that night. You know, we can't really celebrate the ordinariness in our children's lives unless uh, we can celebrate the ordinariness in our lives. So I wrote something recently for the Huffington Post that speaks to that. When I write, I tend to rewrite until it disintegrates. Um, But I had just come home from my monthly mom group with Jennifer Waldberger And uh, I sat at my computer and I just typed. And, 
you know, it has everything to do with Dr. Shafali's revolutionary message, and she actually shared it on her Facebook page. So it's called Restoring the Real World in Parenting. We want our children to do well in life, so we prepare them for the real world. With the best of intentions, we sign them up for extracurricular activities, shuttle them to playdates, and expect them to catch up to our frenetic pace. Already, I say to my toddler, Sabrina, we don't have time. Can we please hurry up? I'm not going to ask again. We can do that later. These nagging phrases fall out of the same mouth that kisses her goodnight, and it doesn't feel good to either of us. I blame my tension headaches on the fact she's resisting me. After all these lessons and playdates and parent and me classes, I'm doing it all for her. To prepare her for school and socialization and... Wait a minute. <laughs> Is that true? I mean, am I really doing this for her? Or am I terrified of slowing down myself and remembering the moment-to-moment -moment world I abandoned probably in third grade? So perhaps my mom's stress actually comes from the deeper truth that I'm trying to ignore. My imagined agenda does not matter as much as my actual child. The bad feeling that arises when we're running late somewhere and she is meditatively picking up every leaf on the sidewalk is not rooted in her resistance to hurrying up, but in my resistance to slowing down. My child is shepherding me back to the real world I've neglected because I've been too busy constructing an imaginary world of future accomplishments and external validation and Pinterest boards of what our lives should look like. I have so many ideas for our little backyard that I haven't gotten around to, but my child begs me to stop and admire it just as it is. Sitting on the back steps, she spots a dead ant five feet away. Like, How is a kid's eyesight that good? She puts her little hand in mine. Her little round belly fills with breath. She is my guide to the real world, the actual real world. When I have the courage to slow down with her, my defenses fall away, and I am overwhelmed with love of all the people who exist on this planet, all the ones who have come before us, and all those who will come after us. This is the little girl I get to steal my kisses from. This is the child who calls me mom. I devote Atomic Moms podcast to conversations with esteemed thought leaders or rather heart leaders such as our guest today, Dr. Shafali. You know, these revolutionary women are restoring the parenting connection that's been lost. They are begging us to slow down and to make a conscious choice to be present with our children. And I know in my gut, the second brain the brain that senses into our truths more easily than our thinking brain I know they'd all agree that the main purpose of childhood is not for preparing them for future trophies or test scores or acceptance letters. It's for the connection, the giggles, the sense of security, the mutual admiration between parent and child. Okay, guys, so as a new mom, when I think about that first year with Sabrina, I always imagine us sitting on the couch like all cuddled up and uh watching oprah's super soul sunday it was like my church and one week i couldn't stop crying because dr shafali sabari was the guest and it was may of 2014 and my daughter was nine months old and i had no idea i'd ever have a parenting podcast i had no idea that i'd reach out to her a year later and she would say yes 
sure she'd be a guest. And then we'd have a chance to talk to her about her New York Times bestselling book, The Conscious Parent, and her follow-up, Out of Control, Why Disciplining Your Child Won't Work. And since then, we've kept in touch. And she's really been a guiding light. And uh, her book, The Awakened Family, A Revolution in Parenting, is available today. Buy it. Download it. Read it on your Kindle. Uh, message us on Facebook and on Twitter. There's so much more to it than what we got to, but I'm really proud of the discussion we had. By the way, one thing I've noticed is that the more I care about something, the more tweaked out I get. So we kick off this conversation in an unorthodox manner. And I'm excited about it because the information Dr. Shafali shares with me is so helpful in my own life. And I, I think probably in many of yours. Because look, I'm not interested in seeming like an authority. My daughter is two and a half. I'm interested in the truth and in healing and in integrating our past so that we can be truly present for our children. We'll be right back with Dr. Shafali. Hello. Hello. How are you, lovely? I'm good. I actually want to, uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about the Awakened Family. And I also want to confess that I think this work is so important because even right now in my early 30s, I'm like inching towards mid 30s, so I'll still say early, um, <laughs> that the weight of expectations um, mm-hmm. and the, with this call, my intention is just to get information out for other people. So why do I still feel this like pressure on myself for it to go perfectly? And that's why I am such a champion of your book because you're giving us the tools so that our own children don't have to suffer in this way. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, I can offer you a little nugget maybe that may work for you. You know, you put this weight on, on Ellie, on, physical Ellie, because in a way you may still uh, in some way identify that Ellie is doing this job. And if you keep thinking like that, you're going to buckle under the pressure. Like if I kept thinking Shafali is doing this job or Shafali is on stage or Shafali is with Oprah, I think I'd just die, right? So I think identifying with Shafali or Ellie or identifying as you know, the parent of Samuel or Jacob or Jason or uh, Trisha, when we identify as that, then we get in the way. And if we then step out of that and say, no, I'm just the channeler of this message. I just need to like clear myself, clear my ego and just become the pure messenger that and, and trust that it will come through me whatever is meant to come in the moment, I will respond to this guest in the moment as it's meant to be, but you have to have supreme trust, right? Trust that you can get out of the way, trust that there is something known as message coming through, and then trust that this moment will be what it will be perfectly complete. If you can do these three things, then we project that onto our children, the trust the as isness is complete as is, not that it shouldn't become better, not that we can't always learn, but that in that moment it was with whatever level of consciousness we had, then we, sh- we actually project that abundance on our children and because we ourselves are living in that and then we're kind of free. The only way I've survived expectations is 
it's not me. It's not me. I just have to get out of the way and do this work and the work will speak through me and it won't be perfect all the time and it will constantly evolve. But I, I, it's not me. So, you know, if we keep saying it's me, then we, then we become critiquing and judging and, oh my God, then it never ends. I am so obsessed with the story of your daughter's first horse show. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing that with our listeners. Because I grew up around horses and I used to ride when I was little. And in middle school, I participated in my first event um, and I got last place and I never uh, competed again. And I loved so much how you shared when your daughter wasn't doing well, you had the same reaction or the same support when your mother, when your daughter was doing well as when she wasn't doing well. Like what an incredible way to allow a child to thrive and just to have the experience. Um, because I feel like children are always looking to their parents for sort of how they're judging the experience for them. Yes. But speaking to your point, you know, first, the nature of competitions doesn't work for all children. So in this example that you're explaining with my daughter, she did a horse show and the first round, you know how they have these rounds, the first round, she came fourth or fifth, I can't remember, uh, out of like 12. And then the, the final round, she actually came second. And through this, you know, through the fifth, fifth place and her disappointment that she didn't come in the top three, she was anxious, she was angst-ridden, she was upset with the horse, and I found myself having to be the container of all of that and not buy into any of that myself so that I could project to her the steadfastness that it doesn't matter, you know, you're do, you are winning in my eyes because you're doing this new thing under pressure and you're surviving. And that's what I want you to see in yourself. I want you to see the growth that you're going through. And then when she came second place, of course, I was so excited, but I didn't want to project that onto her either because that excitement was coming from my little girl who was so excited, but it may not have been her experience. She needed to understand that both were equal and that my, if my thesis was that the experience was important, which every parent tells their kid, but somehow the kid picks up on something else, then that's what I had to hold steady to and keep that in my forefront. And then after this, I thought in my child self that, oh, now she's going to love doing competitions because she came second. And she stayed the same as she was before she entered the competition. And she had told me, I don't understand why I need to be in a competition to improve, to show my love for horses. And I had told her, just try one and then we'll see thinking that if she did well, she would catch the bug of competing again, coming from my own small mind and my own <laughs> ego and my own inner child. And then after the competition, she showed no difference. And she said, I, yeah, good. I came second, but I don't want to compete again. I don't like to be looked at by three judges, you know, in a ring. That's not me. And I had to, again, let go of that, let go of that ego that wanted her. Look, you're doing so well. Why would you not compete? Why would you not get 10 medals? Why wouldn't we spend our entire life getting accolades from other people? That is so cool. <laughs> and she wasn't buying it. And uh, I had to, again, let go the need to keep saying, but you can second, but you can second. But I could just see that tape recorder wanting to play, you know, how we parents just become parrots, you know, like just complete robots. But you did this, but you did that. And I just had to go, no, 
listen to who she is. That is not her nature. She doesn't like this. She doesn't like getting accolades from other people. Maybe I do that and not her. And just let it evaporate. You know, let that whole fantasy eviscerate. It's really hard for parents to let that entire fantasy evaporate. But that's what we have to keep doing when we raise our children. I love that so much also because if your child doesn't like to compete, that we should trust their nature and that it's okay that that's their nature and that it's not something to fix or change about them. Because so many parents would look at the kid who's playing football and like doesn't want to go as like, oh, my kid's a loser now and all that stuff we put on them. Um, and the idea that if we can just trust that our children are who they are supposed to be, um, in every moment that they'll end up becoming their best selves. Exactly. If, if they stay true to who they are versus take on our ideals of who they should be. And even say they, she did go back to compete and, but she was doing it out of her false self, doing it to please her mom or please doing it to get, get some accolades that she felt she wanted to, you know, boost her identity. She wasn't doing it out of the true love that many kids do compete with. Many kids can and do compete with true love. And then many kids can do compete with the false self. So if your kid is now competing out of false self, it's actually a greater disservice to them because they will learn to keep filling that false self, which is actually uh, unfillable at the end of the day and uh, will feel empty if that false self isn't filled. And I mean, from my own experiences, you know, growing up and doing really well in school and always, you know, seeking the approval or then coming out to Los Angeles and trying to be an actress and then having that, um, not getting the parts to have to sort of, that false self comes around, like you, you can't escape it. Like you're going to eventually have to figure out who you really are without the accolades because it's insatiable like that. You can never fill yourself up. Um, enough with never other people's uh, praise. No, and, 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 and like you said, you just keep doing, you keep pivoting further and further and further away from your true self, right? So now you've created another layer, then another layer, then you've created so many layers that are so far from who you are, and then you have a midlife crisis, <laughs> and you go, okay, now I have to peel back. Oh, I'm not a... I'm not a doctor, or I'm not a super achiever, or I'm not a, a scared person, or I'm not a competitive person, or I'm not a jealous person, whatever you've created, right? Or I'm not an overeater, or I don't need to overeat, or I don't need to overdrink. I did all that because I was soothing uh, the, the wound in me. And now you have to like recover. That's recovery, right? You're recovering from the false self. That's what real recovery is. People are always concerned about like fixing their children or wanting them not to be like them. I don't want my daughter to pick up my bad habits. And so I try and change her. Not really because I have this podcast and I'm learning from you, but like people try to change their children so that they're not like the parent when really it's about, no, we need to change, fix ourselves or become more aware of our actual selves so that our children um, don't absorb it from us. Like, it's not about fixing or changing them. It's about like, what is my stuff? How can I heal from this so that she's not taking it on? Exactly. You hit it. Exactly. So we keep fixing them. And how do I stop my kid from being this way? And how do I change this in my kid? Oh my God, my kid is anxious. I can't, you know, you can't 
do anything that you're not. You know, you can't change in someone something mm. that you're not. So it's that's what I keep saying. That's the invitation. Whatever you see in your child is the invitation to go within yourself and say, okay, so I'm seeing anxiety and it's causing me anxiety. So how can I fix my kid's anxiety when now that anxiety is causing me anxiety? So until I come to a state of wholeness, forget it. I don't should not even try to fix my kid's anxiety because I'm just in that going to make the kid feel bad that they can't help themselves or can't get over it. So it's only when I heal my own anxiety. And this is with every elemental question our children pose to us. Mom, why do I need to go to school? Mom, why do I need to brush my teeth? Mom, who's God? Mom, what's going to happen when we die? Mom, you know, will I be raped when I go to school? Any, any existential or just simple foundational questions in life, if we haven't kind of sorted it out, and I don't mean to be dogmatic and righteous about it, just kind of sort it out in our head without a, a dogmatism, actually without a desire to impose it on anyone, without a fundamentalism, just a real sorting through of what's my place in this world? Why am I sending my kid to school? Why am I telling my kid no more screen time? Why am I saying, you know, don't chew gum at this hour or whatever, small or big thing we may say to them, where is it coming from? You know, if it doesn't come with a coherence, um, then at least let's own that we're wishy-washy. So therefore our kids are not picking up on our signals, you know, Um, but let's not pretend we are so clear when we're not clear. You know, the other day I had to tell my daughter, I have to take responsibility because I've been very wishy-washy about this boundary. And then I get angry with you when you're, you know, not able to keep the boundary. I have been wishy-washy. And I told her, I said, because my fantasy was that at 13, you would kind of self-regulate, you know. And I told her, it's not your fault. It's not, I'm not putting you down. I need to now, oh, say to myself that, oh, the kid is not self-regulating. I need to be the regulator of those boundaries still. You know, this was about screen time. You know how these kids have a hard time with screen time. You'll see when your kid turns 13. It's like the biggest issue in my life. You know, the only issue really I have is that the kid doesn't know how to give up the screen. You know, it's like crack cocaine. So I have to, so I keep thinking that the kid can do rehab on her own every day and recover from the screen and and the kid can't. So I have to create an intervention. And I've been very wishy-washy about the intervention because I've been waiting and, um, then I had to own, oh my goodness, I've been having all these arguments with you because it's me who's wishy-washy. I'm not figuring out that my kid can't do this on her own. I have to intervene. So I do so with compassion, of course, but I better intervene. Um, so I became strong about it, you know, and now it's clear. So it all comes from our own wishy-washiness, you know, or our own story. I mean, that's, I mean, so much drama, like all of our drama comes from the wishy-washy. I'm putting my daughter to bed. (laughs) I'll be wishy-washy because sometimes it's like, I'll want to stick around a little longer, but then it's not fair to her because another time she'll want me to stay and I don't want to stay. Exactly. And then I end up, I'm wishy-washy, wishy-washy. And then it's like, all this emotion rises up in me. Exactly. And so it's like this. <laughs> because we don't want <laughs> There's our kid always to, the explosion. Yeah. And we don't want our kid to make us feel like we're bad people, right? Like, so you'll be like, yesterday you sang her three songs. 
because you, you were wishy-washy and you were like, oh, we have so much time. Suddenly, you know, you were in a good mm-hmm. mood and you had time. And then today, you're not going to have time. And you're like, no, I can only sing one song. And then she's going to say, you're a mean mommy, you know, you're so mean. And then she'll, she'll, she'll call you some names and she'll, she'll act like you're the worst parent in the world. And then our guilt comes up. And then we're going to get angry with them and say, I'm not a mean mommy. I'm the best mommy. I try so hard for you. Look what all I do all day. And so what if I say one song? You're so mean. And then, you know, you're, you're getting into this conflict with the little five-year-old because you to be have not made it clear what our final boundary is, you know, or, or we haven't gotten up from our phone on time to create that space for our kid, or we haven't cleared up our schedule to give our kid those 20 minutes at night or that one hour at night. We haven't done that, right? I watch myself on my phone or my work. I can call it work, but it's another form of not being present to my child. You know, great that I have this work, but who cares at the end of the day if I'm not present? And I can see myself at 10 o'clock still working and not going downstairs to be present and be attentive. And mm-hmm. and then I get upset. Oh, you didn't do it? You're 13 years old and you didn't do it? You know, and put mm-hmm. the blame on the kid. You I know. know. Shafali, so, you're so hard because you make us walk the walk. Like if we're going to do this to our children, like if we're going to tell our children they need to be this way, we have to be this way. And that's just like such a bummer. Like, can't you just be a little easier on us? Like, can't we? I know. Can't we just blame the kid already? Can't we just like just yell at the kid? I mean, we can and we do, even I do. But I know in my gut that, oh, you know, yeah, you you have to wake up. And, you know, hopefully we have partners who help us. You know, my husband's always saying, oh, you want me to, you really want me to blame my your daughter right now? I go, yes, can you blame her right now? <laughs> can you not show me the mirror all the time? So it's really hard. It's a it's a pain in the neck. I don't know why I wrote these books because uh, <laughs> it's, it's too much work. I agree with you. <laughs> There's so much growth. After a weekend, I'm full of commiseration. Oh, and so funny. <laughs> empathy. <laughs> And speaking of like putting the mirror on ourselves, you you talk about how our children never trigger us. And I'm sure there are a lot of moms listening right now that are like, are you kidding me? My kid triggers me 15 times a day. Um, so can you please uh, explain that to mothers that are unfamiliar with your work? Well, there's several layers to that. So, uh, of course, our kids trigger us, but the way we pitch it as as, as if we are are righteously indignant when they do because they are at fault. They trigger us because we have triggerable issues within us. If we didn't have those issues, no kid would trigger us. Our kids are being kids, right? You know that and I know that at the deepest deepest truth of our gut that our kids are just being kids. They didn't come on earth to manipulate us. They didn't come on earth to deceive us. They didn't purposely decide I, that at four we must throw tantrums or be distracted or be lazy or be unmotivated. Part of it is the state of childhood. And the state of childhood inherently works against this, uh, you know, carefully constructed control we've created as adults, you know, but we don't realize that children are just being children. Now, we have them, so we have to understand that this is the nature of children and they need guidance. They don't, la- they don't have skills. They haven't matured. They may not have time management. They may not organize. They may not be motivated. This is something that we have to help them and guide them with. But that takes an inordinate amount of time. Who has time for that? So we just we just presume that children should be mini adults. And then we just presume that they should just, you know, every time they're not a mini adult, they're purposely doing it. And then we get triggered. Now, if we change the whole lens upside down to go to say children are just being children, they need guidance and 
skill building. They are not purposely or deceitfully doing anything to us. The reason I'm being triggered right now is because I haven't organized my day or I'm overscheduled or I'm a single parent or I'm too overwhelmed in my own life. I have too many anxieties on my own that I haven't dealt with that I don't know how to deal with. It's me who needs the skills. It's not them who are to be blamed because they are triggering that inside me. So this is all coming from us. And the reason I say this is because if it was that every kid triggers us, we would all be triggered by the same thing. The fact that we are not all triggered by uniformly, consistently the same thing means, oh, you have that issue and I have this issue. Oh, I don't have your issue at bedtime, but I have your issue at breakfast time. So we all have different issues which go to show that it's something within the parent and not uniformly consistent in children. I see that on the playground all the time when a mom will complain about something going on with her kid. And I'm like, what's the big deal? And then meanwhile, I've got something that she's like, yeah, what's okay. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Here's an issue I'm having right now. You talk about sacred boundaries and the idea that, you know, if someone's not good in our life, like let's say we have a friend who's not good for us, we need to have that boundary and we need to say, you know, enough is enough and, and not have that person in our life if they're not good for us. Um, if that friend's not good for us, but then at the same time, if all the triggers are my own, how do I know if that person's not good for me or if I just need to work on the trigger? Does that make any sense? That's kind of a crazy, complicated question. Correct. Correct. Beautiful. Beautiful. I I simplify that. Maybe you're asking, you know, it's these, this, this talk about boundaries and, you know, do what's good for you and, you know, stay away from people who are toxic yeah, that's that's easy to say, but it not it's not complete unless you've done your inner work to understand what you've done to create that situation too, you know? It's easy to say just walk away from the person. Of course walk away from the person, but do so after seeing how you entered the dynamic, after seeing how you played your role piece by piece, piece by piece, piece by piece. Did you enter with love? Did you enter with grace? Did you enter with empowerment? Did you enter with, with sweetness, with honesty, with humility? Moment after moment, moment after moment. And you, did you keep holding your hand in the we space? And then if that person is not, and I don't mean to say that this has to extend over years. I mean, it could be two tight slaps you got in the beginning and then you need to take your hand away. But did you enter in earnest, you know, courage and humility and honesty? And if you came clean, but that person is not in the place to receive it, and that person is just, you know, filled with emotional garbage and junk, then please walk away. Please do walk away in the first time. Don't wait for the second slap. But, <laughs> but many of us don't do that, that initial inner cleaning. So then we just pitch the other one as evil and the other one is not evil. They were just not meant to be in on our path, on our journey. And they're only evil because we like idiots stayed along too long and got abused. No, we need to watch it, watch ourselves, watch it, the isness of the dynamic, and then watch them and see how we're being received, see how we, our energy is being taken. And we should know ourselves so well that the minute somebody is stinking of untruth or stinking of uh, incongruence, we should be able to call it. But because we ourselves are not clear to our own story, our own energy, our own feelings, we enter the dynamic, stay too long, and then pitch them as the evil person. No, no, they're not evil. They were doing their thing. They were, they were doing their unconscious thing. It was us who wasn't clear enough uh, you know, consistent within our own beings, aligned to our own truth, to cut it when we needed to cut it. We have to be awake, you know, so awake that we can pay attention to when something is amiss 
right? That's awareness. You know, that's me. That's the awareness we need in our own bodies. You know, we have to know when our own stress signals are going up. We have to know when we've shot from the heart to our own head. We have to see when our own ego came up, but we have to be so aware of ourselves, right? It tuned to our inner state. And that takes a lot of quiet stillness, watching your thoughts, knowing who you are, seeing your fake game, you know, seeing it. If you don't see your game, or if you didn't play your part in creating mini boundaries, mini boundaries, mini boundaries, then when that person violates your big boundary, you're going to cast them as evil instead of just holding the mirror to them and saying, look, I, I held my mini boundaries. You didn't hold yours. So now I need to either just show you and hopefully you rise up to the occasion or I need to walk away. But there's a lot mm-hmm. of work we need to do before walking away. A lot of Atomic Moms listeners are concerned or anxious that they won't have the birth experience that they would like. A lot of our listeners uh, did not have the experience that they had wished for. Um, and I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing with them your your experience giving birth, because I think if they, it was so kind of you to share this in your book, because I think if people can hear you talk about it as someone who, um, you know, if anyone can have, or, you know, we would think if anyone can have like a birth where it's just like candlelight and you decided to sigh out a baby, it would be you. So can you please share um, your actual experience and what you learned from it? So I entered the, you know, the journey of parenthood uh, when I was pregnant with all these fantasies, you know, yes, by the candles and natural under the trees and the stars. And (laughs) That was my fantasy, right? That was my image of who I felt I needed to be. And I thought I could execute. Really, you know, till you give birth, you keep the fantasy alive for nine months. You get to do, choose whatever fantasy you have and maintain it. Unless, of course, you have gestational diabetes, you know, poor thing. Her balloon gets popped within a couple months. And then the one who's bedridden, you know, she feels like such a, you know, like she's been cheated out of her, you know, pregnancy experience because she's now bedridden, her balloon pops. And I now counsel parents and tell them, good, your balloon is popping earlier than later. Don't, I understand that you feel robbed, but really what's being robbed is just your fantasy. And I had this huge fantasy too, that I'm a meditator. I can breathe myself through labor and I will have a natural birth. And I ended up having this very chaotic, rushed, disorganized birth. And I felt like I had, something had died, that there was this huge loss. And I had, you know, the start of this depression and I was questioning, why am I depressed? My baby's so healthy. And after deep inquiry, I realized that, oh, the loss was of this fantasy. You know, so now I tell parents that, you know, if we don't get into the game of the as-isness of this spirit coming to us and understand it's a co-creation and understand it's a partnership and everything in life is a co-creation and a partnership, then you will keep tripping over these desires, these expectations, these fantasies. And when they don't come true, you're going to have depression. You're going to be really depressed and feel cheated and feel victimized versus entering clean, entering ready for this journey. You know, if we're going to bring on children, we better be ready for the unknown in a big way. Um, So I share that birth experience for that reason, to show parents that I too trip over my fantasies on a daily basis. And it's part of that unlearning, unfolding, deconditioning that we need to go through to come back to that true self. Beautiful. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Shivali. Um, oh, thank you. Uh, I'll in, in this by just asking, is there like one question that Oprah hasn't asked you yet that you wish she would? You know, Oprah and I have had such conversations um, of depth and profound insight, but every conversation I have, I have to tell you, like I'm talking to you right now, none of this has ever come up with Oprah. And then things come up with her that don't come up with other people. I'm sure you feel that as well with every guest. Mm-hmm. It's so it's so different. It, it's, this is the newness of every moment. You know, I bring a different energy. You bring a different energy in this moment today that we will not bring it tomorrow and will never be replicated by another person. So there are a million questions that we never get to uh, with, with, within the interviews with Oprah. And there are a million questions that we get to with you that I never will get to with other people. So it's just so idiosyncratic, just like our relationship with our children moment after moment. And I've come to, you know, I, there were times when I would be like, oh, why wasn't this question asked on that day? Because I would answer it so well. And I would <laughs> cling on to these these fantasies. And now I've just learned to observe it when that comes up, that, that anxiety that, oh, I didn't answer this so well that day, or I wish this question had been asked or, you know, and I've learned to surrender, like I said, in the beginning of the talk to what the universe wants to bring out at this moment and release it to the universe. Otherwise, the angst and the plague of, did I say that right? Why didn't I say that? You know, I said that in Ellie's interview and I didn't say that in, in, in Sam's interview. And it just is a torment. And I've just learned to say, you know, whatever the moment brings up is what it is meant to be in the dynamic and the chemistry of that instant and good for those readers or good for those listeners who get to hear that part and the others who didn't, maybe they weren't ready to, and just let it go. Your book is on sale today, and I can't wait for our listeners to pick it up. Thank you for your time, uh, Shafali. Thank you for your friendship, and um, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Love, love to everyone. Hope they enjoy the book and hope they transform their lives. Until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness, rock on, Atomic Moms. 